maybe I should get out now before something like that is required. And and then, you, you you know, it's kind of like the heart's like layers of onions. You peel that back and you go, well, why don't I trust? Why am I scared of that? I'm scared because I don't really trust, right? My fear is, is revealing that I don't really trust God if he were to ask me something of this of this depth, of this quality. And uh, so I don't really trust him. And then that leads us to a very uncomfortable place, which we say, we start to wrestle with, oh, well, how much do I really trust him? Do I, do I trust him if he requires me of my car? Or, you know, at what point do I say I'm, I'm in and at what point do I say I'm out? And questions like that make us feel uncomfortable because we like to think more of our relationship with God than perhaps is actually there. In fact, one of the main points this morning is we don't really know what is actually there until it's tested. Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11, 17, they both refer to this as a test. And that's the nature of what's happening before us. It's a test to Abraham. And what I want you to begin to process and wrestle with this morning is that testing is actually essential for your faith. Testing is actually a good thing. And in fact, by the time we're done, maybe you'll even ask or seek to be tested in some way. And I'm certainly not going to run to be and ask to be tested like Abraham was tested. But perhaps we might seek tests of uh, of our faith. Because Abraham shows us three different things about being a hero. Remember, this is why we're in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the hall of the heroes of faith. And they're the heroes of faith because they reflect, really, Jesus who is the one hero of faith. But the exhortation to us, the challenge is that we would learn from them, we would model them. We would become heroes of faith ourselves. Honor God to serve one another. And so what do we learn from Abraham? I think three things stand out, and it's it's these. Without testing, you don't know what you believe. Without testing, you don't know what you fear. And without testing, you don't know what you love. In other words, kind of the, the idea behind that is without testing, you could be living in a world of make-believe. And you don't really know it until the test comes. And testing reveals that we don't know what we believe, what we don't know, that we don't know what we fear, and we don't know what we love. So let's consider first, the testing reveals that we don't know what we believe. What is actually the nature of Abraham's test? Is the test simply like God sitting up in his throne room and, and thinking, Okay, I'm going to think of the hardest thing I can ask of a human being. And that will be Abraham's test, and we'll see if he gets through it. I think the test is actually, it, it is that in a sense, but I think it's actually a little bit different. And to see it, look with me at Genesis 22, verses 17 through 19. Notice how the author, I'm sorry, that it's not in Genesis, it's in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. Notice how the author of Hebrews framed uh, the test that is before Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, why is the test phrased in this way? Why is it framed in terms of the words of promise? says uh, of Abraham, the one who had received the promises, and then Isaac is the one through whom the promises were that all his offspring shall be named. It is because Isaac is the promise. All of the promises of land, of generations, of multiple descendants, 
Right? They're all coming through Isaac. Isaac is the linchpin to all of the promises that God has laid out to Abraham. So when God says to Abraham, I want you to give up your son, he's saying is, I'm going to take out the linchpin to the promises. So the real question, the test is for Abraham, do I really believe the promises of God, even though it seems like he's revoking all of those promises? Another way to ask the question, does Abraham have the faith that God will achieve his promises despite seeming to throw them all to the wind? And Abraham amazingly does. Right? What does Hebrews tell us about the way Abraham is processing this? God's made all these promises through Isaac. Now he's taking Isaac away. Well, the only way to thread this needle is for Isaac to be raised from the dead. So I can offer up Isaac to God because I trust him. I believe that God will still be faithful to his promises in a way that surprises me, surprises everyone. But Abraham does not really have the opportunity to know what he believes, right, until the crux, until the test, until he is faced with, okay, am I going to do this or not? That's only, that's the point at which he knows he believes, yes, I believe in God's promises. God's going to do something crazy. Perhaps he'll raise Isaac from the dead. I don't believe that God in demanding this is throwing out everything he's promised. How can Abraham come to that conclusion? Right? Simply from a logical perspective. If you simply take the promises of God and then take the command to sacrifice Isaac, it would be so easy to conclude this God is schizophrenic. He's nuts. Right? What, what, who, why am I going to follow this God? The only way Abraham could have come to the conclusion that he did was that he had come to the place where he had utter confidence in God's character. He says, because he says, I, do, I can't possibly understand this. You're going to have to do something way out of the norm to make everything work out. But I have confidence in your character. I believe in your promises. So let's have the story go forward. It's a remarkable act of faith. It's, it's easy to understand why it's the most significant passage in Judaism and the most significant passage in many ways up until we have the cross. We have the tendency to believe wrong stories and wrong promises all the time. Right? Here's a picture of Abraham who understands that, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to believe in God's character. End of story. We are believing wrong things all the time, buying into wrong stories. You may have seen earlier uh, in this year a story that you may have delighted in. The scientific journals uh, splattered across the news media that you can lose weight by eating chocolate. Right? I'm, I'm about to dash your dreams. If you were enjoying that story, you uh, will have to stop. Right? Uh, Slim by chocolate was one headline, and Why You Must Eat Chocolate Daily was uh, the title in Slim magazine, which I read daily, regularly. So these stories come out and proliferate the news media, and uh, what now has come out, an article by the author of the study named John Bohannon, who's a, a PhD in molecular biology and has made his career of late in uh, uh, relaying to the public how quickly our culture has has um, gravitated to embracing bad science. So, in other words, uh, in order, one of the things he's done is he's looked at lots of journals that exist now where you pay to be published, 
and there's not really any peer review mechanism. So your journals just get thrown out there, articles, just for a fee. So nobody's really monitoring any kind of quality or integrity to the scientific procedure. So Bohannon says, I'm going to one-up this study, you know, this idea that I put out there. I'm actually going to uh, construct a study that appears to be scientific but really isn't, and everybody's going to eat it up. Do you like that pun? Didn't even plan that. And this is what he does. He makes up this study, gets certain people involved. Everybody knows there's three control groups. There's one group on a diet. There's one group on a diet that eats a chocolate bar every night. And then there's a control group. And basically says if you test for enough things scientifically, you're going to have an anomaly somewhere. And it's even easier if you use a really small group. Like just may have control groups of like 15 people. And so out of it, they were able to forge some numbers that suggested that by eating a chocolate bar, and it's funny to read the, the story behind the scenes because the scientists are like, yeah, how are we going to sell this? And one of the scientists goes, oh, make it the bitter chocolate. It's like all of the food people, they think that if it, if it tastes bad, it must be good for you. So we'll make it the high, high percentage cocoa bitter chocolate, and that's what will be good for you. And that's what they do, and it, of course, gets eaten up. Right, chocolate sales of bitter chocolate go through the roof as everyone adopts the diet. I'm going to eat some chocolate to lose weight. And, of course, it's not based on anything. It's an example that we believe the wrong story because it tells us something that we would like to hear. There are also stories that we make up that influence us that that aren't necessarily given to us from the outside but become part of our culture. A really easy example is that uh, it's I think 52.4% of Icelanders authentically believe in the Elvish race. Right? You may have seen this. It's a long-standing uh, belief, long-standing attitude in Iceland that elves actually exist and play a role in normal everyday affairs. So you actually see in the news media in Iceland that uh, a construction site goes wrong, something happens. And, uh, well, we're getting too close to elvish land, and the elves are retaliating. Or, um, you know, someone, uh, there was one story where a man drove off an icy cliff into a gorge, totally unharmed. Of course, it's the story. Elves saved him. They, they carried in, and this was his, his story. And different theories exist to why this is. It's kind of funny. Um, Bjork was being interviewed, and she said, yeah, music people come over, and interview different bands, and they ask if you believe in elves. And he says, if you say yes, you get signed. Like This is something that people like in the Icelandic community and think is marketable. But it's this belief that some people theorize that when the Vikings arrived on Iceland around 800 A.D., there was no one to conquer. There was no indigenous people, and it was so much part of the Viking identity that someone had to be conquered and subjugated, otherwise they weren't really their identity was being stripped from them, that they had to make up a people that had been subjugated and conquered for them to legitimate their claim and existence in Iceland. Now, you sit there and I, your browser furrowed. You all think that's a good bit of crazy. Right? I don't know that it's much crazier than believing that you're going to lose weight eating chocolate. Right? We believe stories that resonate with us and that help us to believe what we want to believe. The point here is that the only way to understand these beliefs and their fallacies and their inconsistencies, their inadequacies, is for them to be tested. 
If you go for a week eating the same food and then go another week eating the same food but eating a bar of chocolate every day, the scale is going to tell you whether that was a very good scientific study. If you go live in Iceland for two weeks in the middle of Elvish territory, if you don't see anything for two weeks, it's likely that it's folklore, it's a legend. The testing provides the opportunity to actually know what is the belief. Our beliefs tend to be shallow and insufficient until they're tested. And then they become deep. They become strong because they've been confirmed. There's reason to put more stock in them after they've been tested. The testing of our faith helps us to know what we believe. But without testing, secondly, we don't know what we fear. This is what Abraham is acknowledged for in Genesis 22. If you look at verse uh, verse 12, he said, The angel of the Lord, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This raises the hard question, is fear a good thing? Fear of the Lord. And... If you're too quick to answer, you might get in trouble because sometimes it's a very good thing and sometimes it's not such a good thing. Right? We read in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Isaiah 11.2, this is a prophecy speaking specifically of Jesus our Lord. And it says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But Jesus himself is characterized by fear of the Lord. But then we read in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Well, which is it? We have two exhortations to fear God, that that's the beginning of wisdom, and we have an exhortation that fear has nothing to do with love, and perfect love casts out fear. Well, there's a depth to fear, which is often captured in the ancient languages and isn't so well in English. There's the kind of fear that is terror. I'm shaking in my boots, right? I hate snakes. I feel a certain kind of fear, right, when I'm around snakes. But then there are people that I greatly respect, right? They're ministers and professors who I become very quiet because I feel like what they're going to say is so worthwhile that I shouldn't say anything. And that's a certain kind of fear. It's a reverence. It's a respect. It's a, an acknowledgement of who they are and what they have to offer. And so what we're called to do is to revere God, to respect Him, but not to live in terror. This love is what actually casts out that terror. We acknowledge that we all live in fear. Fear often drives our stories. We're, we're constantly trying to avoid something that threatens us. And that can move our story in the wrong ways. In fact, this is what Jesus speaks to in Matthew 10, 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. What's Jesus saying? saying if you're only afraid of the person who can damage your body, you're fearing the wrong thing. And that fear is going to lead to the wrong action. The right fear leads to the right action. 
And really, there's only one thing worth fearing in the universe, and that's God. Do you actually fear God in the sense that you revere Him and have great reverence for Him? Do you speak to Him in such a way? Do you honor Him with your time in such a way? It would be fascinating to do a study, you know, without somehow not letting all of us know, but put all of us in front of someone we terribly respected. Some great leader, some famous person, right? Think about someone who in the presence, you would just be in awe. And then if we put you in the presence of God and see, of course, if God actually shows up in that kind of manifestation, you're going to fall to your knees. There's a reason that every most people in the Bible who meet God fall to their knees. But if you didn't know it in that sense, I wondered if you would demonstrate the same reverence and respect for God as you would for someone that you really look up to in this world. Is it that kind of reverence that actually motivates the direction that you're headed and the decisions that you're making? I think, at least for me, I won't speak for you, but as I think about the decisions that I make and the priorities that I often cling to, there's often a lack of fear. There's, there's a great desire to mitigate other fears. Fear of, of something jeopardizing, um, me pleasing people. Fear of me, of something happening to my children. Fear of something happening to my house. And this is where all my time and energy goes. And how much time and energy is left to actually communicate that I fear, that I revere the Creator? Not so much. Now, the other part here is that we can't leave it at fear. If, if our relationship with God was only defined by fearing Him, right, by revering Him, it would be a relationship, but it wouldn't be a great relationship. It certainly wouldn't be the relationship that the Bible pictures nor the relationship that we see Abraham growing in. It was pretty fascinating to watch Abraham's story. When, uh, you know, when he's promised Isaac, he eventually decides that he's going to, to try to make the promise happen through Ishmael. And when God says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham argues with him at length. And now you get to the most serious requirement of all, and there's simply humble silence that having gone through these aspects of his relationship with God, having seen God both demonstrate his power but remain faithful, Abraham trusts. And he's quiet in the midst of this difficult task, which is what we see in him is a growing love. right? Not just fear, but love for God and understanding that God actually loves him, even in the midst of this request. And without testing, we don't know what we love. Not only that, but here's the really crucial part you don't really know if you're loved. right? Now we're going to work on this, and I think it's pretty important. Without testing, you don't know what you love, but you also don't know that you're loved. First of all, you don't know what you love. How do you know you're really loving God? Abraham's had it pretty good so far. Protection, wealth, all right? You know, he's loaded. He's the richest guy around. He's had success in battle. He's got his son. 
Why not worship this God? This God is doing him pretty well, and it's, of course, incredibly similar to the question that Satan poses to Job. Job similarly is doing very well. He's rich. He has a big family, lots of descendants. What could be going wrong? And God says, have you considered my servant Job, how righteous he is? And what does Satan say? Does he love you for nothing? Does he fear you for no reason? Why wouldn't he love you? Why wouldn't he fear you? You're like a a slot machine that always hits it big. As long as the coins keep coming out, why wouldn't he keep sitting there? And Satan goes on to say, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In other words, how do you know he fears you? How do you know... Excuse me, I went beyond the passage which ended. But stretch out your hands and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Right? What's Satan saying? Do something to him. Take away one of his blessings... He's not going to worship you. It's going to be revealed that he doesn't really fear or love you. He's going to curse you to your face. Which, of course, is not what happens for Job, and it's not what happens for Abraham. God reaches out and touches the thing that is most important to him. He does not shirk, but instead continues to love God in the midst of that difficult request. But again, it forces him in the position, just like it forces Job, do I really love God or simply am I pursuing what I think is best for me? And the question remains for your heart. Do you love God and fear Him or do you, do you pretend at that because you believe that He's going to offer you the best blessings? That He's going to make your life the best and ensures the future, that's why you've hitched up to God? Or do you actually love Him as the person who embodies all that is noble and true and good? Do you love him for what and who he is other than what he does for you? If, if you can't answer yes to that, do you even know him? What is, what is the nature of your relationship to him? C.S. Lewis wrote how God's testing was revealing to him that he loved the wrong things. He was always given to loving the wrong things and to living in this place. He writes in God in the dot, God has not been trying an ex- God has not been trying to experiment my faith or love in order to find out their quality. I'm sorry, it should be has been. Oh no, it should be not. Let me start over. Are we ready? God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. What a great quote. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? saying, God knew all about my affections, and he knew that they were false. And if he allowed me to continue to exist in that place, that wouldn't be love at all. right? If if you have a child, and that child is wholly consumed with some sort of toy, 
so that they're ignoring you and ignoring their siblings, and it's detrimental to their health and development, is it loving for you to allow them to keep indulging in that toy any way they want? Of course not. You're going to take it away. Lewis says, God came in, and for these things that I've had affection, and in the ways that I've thought I've had affection for him, it's been a house of cards, and he's knocked it down. And only now do I begin to understand who he is and what a relationship with him is. It is the testing, the knocking down, that has allowed the quality to be revealed of his love. But the other thing that I said is that not only, if we're, if we're not tested, you don't know what you love, but if we're not tested, you don't know how you're loved. If, and to the depth that you're loved. Now, the imagine for a minute, well, don't imagine. It's a family I knew growing up had three children. And uh, they were your typical average family. The third child was born terribly handicapped. And went on for a few years. And the mother eventually said, I didn't sign up for this. This is too hard. I'm leaving. You see, it's the other side of the test. The test now is such that when the mother's love could have been affirmed to be deep and strong and abiding, the test demonstrated that the mother's love was none of these things. And she left, and the father was left to raise the three children. Without the test, there is not the opportunity for God both to honor Abraham, but to rescue him from the plight of sacrificing his son and to show his love and mercy and providing a substitute. Without the test, you don't know the depth of God's love until he has... We are so caught up and so prone to think that God loves us because we're worthy of that love. Right? You think, I'm doing well. I'm not that bad. You look to your left and to your right and say, I'm so much more righteous. My kids are doing better. I'm more faithful. God has good reasons to love me. And that's a love that's based on performance. It's not real love, and it will never satiate your soul. You will never be satisfied. In fact, it will crush you because you will always have to live up to that level of performance to believe that you are worthy of that love. But it's in the moment of failure, it's in the moment of testing that you realize, oh, God's love for me must be very deep. Abraham makes this, he passes great, but he's failed before. He probably would fail again. And the story of Israel and the story of the church is failure after failure after failure. And God's love being meted out in the midst of those failures to overcome them and to move the story forward. The testing is the opportunity for us both to understand what's going on in our hearts, but also to understand the depth of the Father's love for us in the midst of it. And without it, our relationship is nothing more than an economic transaction. I follow you for the blessings you give me, and you love me because I worship you. It's a bank. Abraham understands what it is to be close to God. And what is the result? 
In James 2, 21 through 23, it says the most beautiful thing of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled. It says Abraham believed God, and was counted to him as righteousness. And this is the best part. And he was called a friend of God. Can you imagine being called a friend of God? What God in the history of the world invites his creation to be his friend? But that is the invitation that is extended to you, and the only way to get to that place and to grow in that place is to run into testing. Now, the problem is you can't really test God. We're exhorted not to do that. right? And we, when we do it, we do it very poorly and foolishly. It's not a good idea. But I would dare you this morning, challenge you, do you want to be a friend of God and to know him in the way that Abraham did? Then stop running away from testing. There are tests to your left and right. They'll come up and they will surprise you. And when they do, your tendency, my tendency, will be to run and to duck and to hide. Pray for God's strength to stand, to recognize it, and to run into it. And as a result of it, to have your old self melted away, your new self emerge, and to understand in ways that you have never thought possible what it means to be a friend of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have befriended us befriended us to the point that you would give up your son when you spared Isaac. We thank you for your profound love and pray that you would grow us up in our faith and draw us near to you. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.